Well, good morning. How are you? Nine o'clock crowd was a little uncooperative. I'm hoping for uh, more enthusiasm from you. Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. We are in the book of Colossians, and we have quite a passage of Scripture ahead of us. If you'll open your Bibles, please, in Colossians chapter 3. In the book of Colossians, Paul has been telling this, for us, ancient church of pretty new Christians, how supreme Jesus is. They have all kinds of religious voices and influences, we, as we do, whispering to them, in some cases shouting to them, advising religion and all kinds of different religious practices that they're told they must follow or there will be no hope for them to find the grace of God. And Paul spends the entire letter essentially holding Jesus up, telling them He is the final answer. He is the one that God sent. He's the creator of the world. He's the one that went willingly to the cross to pay for their sins. He's the one that took his life back in the resurrection. And now Paul says, you're in him. You are holy and chosen and beloved because God has done all this for you. It doesn't depend on your own worth and your own achievement. God's grace has done all this for you, and now he's going to pivot to tell them exactly what all of this grace looks like in their day-to-day -day lives, in the wear and tear and struggle of actual human relationships. It's in relationships, really, that the rubber meets the road in Christianity. It's easy, far too easy to sing great songs to God and about God and then go out and cuss your fellow man. Have you noticed? A few years ago, we got a kind anonymous letter from a neighbor saying, you know, if uh, whoever cussed at me, if you would tell them to stop, it didn't represent you guys very well. <laughs> Hope that wasn't one of ours. Hopefully that was just another neighbor, but it happens. Now Paul's going to tell them, in your relationships, in three arenas, in your homes, in your marriages, and in your parenting, in your job, and with outsiders, here's what it means to be secure in Christ and to show the grace of Jesus to the people around you. There may not be a more timely message that I could give you if you can get the single idea that I'm trying to communicate to you today. There may not be something more timely for American Christians in 2016 than what Paul is sharing here. See, the ancient world was a vertical world, and it was harsh. Most of the people who received this letter from Paul were slaves. It wasn't quite the brutality of the American slavery in the South, there was no doubt. One person owned another. The status in almost all of the relationships that these people received at birth would never change and never move. You were born into a slot in this highly stratified vertical society, and with very few exceptions, on rare occasions, you were able to escape and better yourself and have a better life than the one you were assigned at birth. The world was divided in all kinds of ways. There were Jews and Gentiles. There were Jewish religious teachers telling these Gentile believers in Jesus, 
Jesus might be a good start, but if you're not circumcised, if you don't keep kosher, if you don't observe the Sabbath and the festivals, God has no use for you. So Paul had to tell them about the supremacy of Jesus. In the home, the world was no less vertical and no less harsh. An ancient fa- a father in the ancient world owned his children. He had the absolute unquestioned lordship over his children. He could, for instance, sell his son into slavery. He could imprison him, and he could even put him to death. He was the paterfamilias. He was the owner of the family. In the ancient world, if a man and woman were married, the primary relationship was a contractual agreement whereby legitimate heirs could be birthed into the home, and children themselves were little more than workforce. Sometimes there was love between a man and his wife, but that was a happy coincidence. That wasn't part necessarily of the deal. Nobody went into it with romantic expectations. So if you read the literature of the time, you can hear Romans, on the one hand, those who had found love in their wife, calling her my very dear wife and using affectionate language. Many others would say things like this, well, I, she never gave me any reason to complain. Well, there's a love song for you. <laughs> Hugh Justin Bieber to write a tearful ballad about that, huh? You never gave me much reason to gripe, you know? Big strings, powerful horn section. It was a very different world from our own, but in some ways it was not so different because it was vertical and it was harsh. That was their world. Our world is becoming more and more like that. Grace is being drained out of almost all of our relationships. We're talking past each other and shouting at one another. Very few people enter any of the arenas, whether in the home or the workplace or in dealing with outsiders. That's Paul's final instructions for the Colossians. How are they to deal with people in the ancient world who think they're crazy? Because these people, these Gentiles who were raised in the pagan Greco-Roman religions of their childhood now say that they worship a Jew who was killed by Rome on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. Just as he promised and just as the Hebrew Scriptures had promised, they say he rose from the dead and he gave them eternal life and they were holy and chosen and beloved in him. That's where their security and their identity came from because they were connected by the grace of God to this Jesus. And he was their Savior, not only to bless them on earth in this brutal world they lived in, but someday to live with him forever in heaven pagan ears, that sounded like insanity. And the Roman world and the Roman Empire eventually came to understand that the very ideas of Christianity, which leveled the playing field and said that men, women, Jews, and Gentiles all had equal worth and all were beloved by God in Christ was subversive. Persecution would start in a short order. In all of this, after holding up the supremacy of Jesus, now Paul is going to tell them about their relationships. He's going to give them instruction about relationships, and that is something that people are searching for even today. You go to Barnes & Noble, one of the last few bookstores, brick-and-mortar bookstores left, there is a giant section of books that intend to help you with your relationships. Have you seen this stuff? 
fact, I, as I looked at biblical wisdom and biblical truth, I also perused a few more ordinary titles this week and found some books about relationships in our day. Let me give you a few of them. Strangely, they're almost all written by women <laughs> and for women. Do you know why that is? Well, <laughs> truth of the matter is, uh, men instinctively understand women, and we just, we just get it. We don't really need a lot of instruction. It just comes to us very naturally, and that's why we're not writing the books or reading the books. Right, guys? That may be the, that may be the first time I've felt personal rejection from the congregation about anything I've said. Here's some of these titles. Here's man's search for relational wisdom. One is entitled Delicious Dating, The Single Girl's Guide to Decoding Men by Their Whining and Dining Styles. Okay? That doesn't help. You might want to read How to Tell He's Not the One in 10 Days. I can tell you from personal experience, it sometimes doesn't take 10 days. <laughs> Sometimes 10 minutes are sufficient. This one seemed oddly personal and a little bit hurtful. Why you're still single. Things your friends would tell you if you promised not to get mad. And my favorite, marry him. The case for settling for Mr. Good Enough. I don't know what you're yelling at me for. I didn't write the book. I'm just... Uh, as in all things, I'm just the reporter. I'm just telling you historical events, okay? That's an actual title. Shall we look to something more authoritative and filled with truth? Now, when I read this, because it's going to walk through these worlds, marriage, parenting, work, and, outs and relationships with people who are outside the faith, this may challenge some of you in different ways. I can hear it work its way through the congregation at 9 o'clock. It's not like this, ooh. All I did was read the Bible, and already people are saying, ooh, okay? This is the Word of God which is intended for our good, for our joy, for our peace. These titles I read you, and they're, they're actual books. It's so much tripe. It's so much silly nonsense. God has truth, but listen, it's countercultural truth. One of my professors in seminary was a professional anthropologist. He studied human cultures for a living, and his conclusion as a Christian scholar was this human cultures, every single one of them, are prisons of disobedience. They keep us away from God. The cells are different, the prisons are different, but the separation from God, the building of a cell of our own construction and design that we think will be better, that's a universal experience. So when I try to apply the simple, straightforward, frankly blunt things that the Bible said, it might push back against some of the things the culture has taught you. I want you to consider on the front side that if you think God is mistaken or I've misread the Bible, consider the fact that it might be the woundedness that other people have inflicted upon you that won't let you hear God's clear voice ordering the relationships in the world He made.
as always, we're in tension between God's truth and His ideal. He is the owner and the creator of life, knowing how life works and working that out in a sin-wrecked world. That was the world of the Colossians. It's still our world 2,000 years later. Here is what Paul said. He begins with the context in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, I'm in Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's the backdrop. Christ is supreme, so what the Christian life looks like is in everything you say and do, you should be able to do that in the name of Jesus, thanking God for life, giving thanks and gratitude to God as you do it. Whatever you cannot do in the name of Jesus while thanking God is probably not conduct becoming of a child of God who is wholly chosen and beloved. That's the backdrop. Then he gets specific. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, slaves in other words. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Think how radical this was to say to someone who is owned by someone else. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Finally, he's going to look outside the church to those who don't believe. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. In other words, the long-hidden truth that Jesus would be the Savior of the entire world. Paul says, on account of that, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Listen, America. Listen, Cross Point. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What's Paul saying here? That's a lot of relationships. That's marriage, that's parenting, that's work. That's outsiders with all of their accusations, with all of their questions with persecution beginning to be harbored in human hearts toward these people who are so different and is beginning to be understood as so subversive. How can a Christian so show the supremacy of Jesus? In other words, if Jesus is this worthy and this good, if He really is the Lord, if He is the one who makes us wholly chosen and beloved, if He is the one who as Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, erases ethnic distinctions and makes it so that in Christ there is no difference between the slave and his owner in the ancient world because Christ is all and is in all. 
What in the world are they to do now to live that out, to show it to the world? Paul's answer is this. We show that Jesus is Lord by giving his grace to other people. We show that he's the boss. We show that we trust him, that we follow him, not by what we say about him, but by giving to others the same grace he gave us. And he begins to walk through the spheres of their lives, beginning in the most intimate relationship of all, which is marriage. Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That verse trouble anyone? A lot of people wish that Paul hadn't written that. Don't look at your wife just now, men. My calendar's full enough. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What's happening here? Well, when Jesus is Lord, he organizes all of our relationships. Paul is saying something that is quietly subversive and is going to fill the home of the ancient world with grace. You see, as I've told you, in the ancient world, it's not exactly that wives were property, but they were, in some cases, little more than that. The agreement didn't really expect love. They didn't expect to find great value in each other. What marriage was, was an institution by which a man and a wife could have legitimate heirs and provide a workforce through their own children to do the work that needed to be done to ensure the family survival. And if the wife could not produce those children or the children would not behave, they could be disposed of. Very quickly, the paterfamilias was in charge. The head of the household was in charge. Paul begins where that is most often going to be abused in the home and where the deepest wounds are going to be dealt. He begins by addressing Christian women who he has already called holy and chosen and beloved. And here is his simple instruction to them. Wives, go home and with your husbands submit to them. This is fitting in the Lord. Submit sounds, especially to modern ears, like a word of domination and abuse, and it was anything else. It was anything but. The simple way to understand the Greek word that Paul is saying here is to modestly put the needs of your husband first. In Ephesians, where Paul wrote to another church with much more detail, we can see him flesh out these ideas. Husbands, and I'll show you why this is more radical, husbands are to love their wives and do not be harsh with them. Look back in Ephesians chapter 5 to get a fuller sense of what Paul taught about marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22, please. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ. In other words, as Christians put the Lord first. As Christians yield to him and follow him, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. In other words, as you're going to see, Paul boils down the central relationship in the Christian marriage to love and respect. Let's keep reading. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he love her? 
Keep reading. What did Jesus do for the church? He gave himself up for her. Now, let's, we're reading these words in the lifetime of Jesus. That would have brought back very vivid imagery of how the life of Jesus ended to the people who were eyewitnesses and who had heard from eyewitnesses what Jesus was like. When Paul says that Jesus gave himself up for the church, let's talk in real practical terms. What did Jesus do so that we could be Christians, so that we could be believers, so that we could be saved? He did what? He died. He willingly chose death. Suffering, contempt, disrespect, torture, followed by death. Paul is telling Christian husbands, this is the way you are to live in relationship with your wives. The household is being reordered by the Lord. The husband is no longer the owner of the wife and the children. He will no longer dispose of them as instruments or property. He is now going to live for her in a sacrificial way, and he gets much more specific. Paul says that Jesus did this, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church, in other words, us believers, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now he's going to bring it right back down to earth. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. That's pretty intense. Because you know who you think about first in all of your dealings? You. Have you noticed? If you haven't picked up the fact that you're thinking about yourself first in all things, it's only because you're so used to it. You're consciously aware of your of your surroundings. You're consciously aware of your body. You're consciously, actively, all the time aware of how you're being treated and how it's going for you. Paul says to this harsh vertical culture where men owned everything, including other men, grace is going to change all that. You are to love your wife as if she were your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Let me put that in simple language, guys. If your wife doesn't win, you lose. That's what it means. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul knows he's in lofty, lofty ideas. Look, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she does what? Respects her husband. You still with me? Have you become an oil painting in the middle of all this? Everybody okay? You ever wondered why men were told to love their wives and wives were told explicitly to respect their husbands? Why isn't it love, love? Those two choices of words, those Christian instructions that come from the heart of God for the good of home and for your own joy were the most radically gracious-filled things that Paul could have said to men and women then and now. He says to wives, wives, you have, you have been placed in this vertical relationship You've been trapped in the ancient world. A woman, unless she truly was loved, and that was rare, was trapped in a 
relationship that was really set up to dominate her, to dehumanize her. How are women in those radically difficult conditions, what are they in obedience to Jesus? How can that woman in that situation show grace to her husband? By in a spirit of cooperation and consideration and love, putting his needs first. That's submission. Then Paul turns to the husbands and he says to them something much greater much harder, and that's why he deals with it in more explicit detail in Ephesians chapter 5. You husbands are not to use your wives as women to bear your babies and prolong your name and assure your fortune. You are to love them. And not only with kind words of encouragement, you are to sacrifice for, for them the way Jesus sacrificed himself for you to bring you into the family of God. What this boils down to in Paul's simple words is that husbands are to love and wives are to respect. And you know where you get stuck? Women will say, when he starts acting more respectable, I'll start acting more loving. And husbands will say, all I get is contempt. If she could show me the slightest bit of respect, just a little bit of admiration, I'd find it a whole lot easier to be loving and affectionate. Dr. Emerson Egerich, and I strongly recommend his material, Love and Respect, if you haven't gone through it, calls that vicious cycle the crazy cycle. I'll start acting respectful when you start acting loving. Oh, really? You battle axe, I'll start acting... <laughs> I'll start acting loving when you start acting respectful, and here we go. And it goes on and on and on. Now, Christian people, how do we break that deadlock? Whoever loves Jesus more at that moment, whoever is more spiritually at that moment, you bring grace into the relationship. You say, because I am secure and holy and chosen and beloved in Him, because my identity does not depend on you and this relationship, because I am loved and chosen and safe in Christ, I am free to treat you with great love, though you're not acting very lovable. And though I can feel words of contempt sticking in my throat, I will treat you with respect, not because you're acting respectable, but because I have profound respect for my Savior Jesus, and grace makes this whole thing change. It was subversive in a deeply, deeply personal way. That's the way marriage works in the, in Christ. What does it look like in the world? In the world, it looks like this. Then and now, husbands, apart from the grace of God, tend to either dominate or do the ultimate act of domination and abandon their wives. Talk to anybody who deals with the public. Talk to law enforcement. Talk to therapists. Talk to social workers about the state of the American home as men have sought, apart from the grace of Christ, to insist on their rights, use the power they've been given in our culture, and dominate their wives. And when that won't work and it serves them better to walk away from them in abandonment. We've created generations of chaos and sin and disorder that no amount of technology and no amount of force is able to resolve. Only the grace of God can do it. How do women respond? They have two choices apart from God. They can manipulate their husband. There's a Greek proverb which may be Greek, but you're familiar with it. It says something like this. Well, the husband may be the head of the home, but the wife is the neck. 
I may act respectful. The words might be just right. But we can both tell by my tone that I hate you. My mother was right about you. He said you were no good. Mother warned me about this. And a quiet, subtle, ever so Christian, especially in the South, a sickeningly sweet domestic blackmail starts occurring where he knows her heart is not with him. There is no respect, there is no trust, there is no loyalty, but we need each other, so we'll just live this little charade where I pretend and we somehow get along. What does Paul advise in that? Grace. Grace, out of love, out of respect for Jesus, put him first, though he may not deserve it. Give him grace. Remember, the very definition of grace is it's undeserved. If you wait for people to deserve the love and the grace you give them, you're not operating in grace. You're just conducting transactions. Thank God Jesus is not a transactional Savior. He came to us when we were lost, dead in sin, very far from Him, and with no expectation and no help from us came to be not our helper but our Savior, our rescuer. And women who are, who are not su successful in manipulating their husbands will dissolve underneath their pressure. And they'll just be absorbed into his world, his life. They'll become whatever he wants them to be just to survive. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has better things for you. Grace is the answer. He goes on to speak to children. Look in the next verses. Back in Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 3. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, children in the ancient world had no choice. They lived under domination. They knew very well the social risks that they ran. Paul says to children, he addresses them as human beings, as morally capable people. That in itself was revolutionary in the ancient world. Kids weren't much of anything except instruments until they became emancipated. The boys would go out to replay that vertical domination. The girls would hope to do well in marriage, and maybe he would actually love them. Paul addresses children, minors in Christian homes. Children, here's how you show that you're a follower of Jesus. You obey your parents to please the Lord. It's not compliance, it's obedience. And parents, please hear me. I wish I had more time, but this is a large passage. You have to parent and pray and encourage and coach and do everything you can for your children to secure their obedience, not merely their compliance. There's a huge difference. You ever see the cops make somebody comply because he wouldn't obey? It happens. He was actually just chirping his horn and lights at you because you were driving without your lights off, but then rebellion and ignorance overtook you. And you thought, I was born free. I don't have to do what the man says. And you took off. And he was offended. So he called many more just like him with radios and guns and cars. And since you wouldn't obey, he made you comply. I've seen it. It's a painful experience. Para for obedience. Obedience means that it comes from the heart. Kids, literally for the love of God, if you have the gift of a parent who is doing his best to follow Jesus 
and showing you the way to do the same. Your reverence, your love for God is not to fight them and manipulate them and drag your feet through the situation, but to from the heart obey them as your obedience, as your reverence to the Lord. Because your parents, if they're on their job, they're training you to follow the Lord. What does that look like in the world? In the world, apart from God, children become the center of the home. Children are not being given instructions to obey as part of their worship to Jesus. The orbit of the American home increasingly is the child. So that what he wants becomes the dominant factor in how everybody else lives their lives. Parents, can I tell you from someone who's in the struggle with you, but increasingly getting toward the finish line where my kids will, within the next two or three years, they'll both be out of the home. If you make them the sinner, you'll ruin them. You'll destroy them. Proverbs says it like this, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. You train them, you correct them, you point them back to Jesus, not to enhance your own power, but to submit to his because you want them to enjoy life. Here's a fog-cutting question that you can ask right now about how it's going in your parenting. The question is this, do other people enjoy being around your kids? If they don't, something is wrong. Because other people who have not part of the universe that has the kids at the center, they're not under the obligation to love them. And if other people, kids and grown-ups, cannot possibly enjoy your children, you have a child-centered home. And it's the, it seems like the most gracious thing, but it's actually the most destructive thing you could ever do to your kids. This is the instruction. You children, you obey your parents because this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Think about how subversive and countercultural that was. Dads, you're Christians now. You don't get to act this way in this harsh, vertical, I'll put you in prison if you don't mind. That was the ancient world. What are you to do now? You are to coach to keep the heart of the child with the Lord and with you. You are to guide your every decision and word to point them to him and to his grace so that he will not become embittered and be crushed or rebelled against you. In all these relationships, again, grace is the answer. And G.K. Chesterton said it well. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Whatever part of this verse pushes back against you, your hurts. Because look, I get it. If you were gravely mistreated by a man, I understand how harsh the words submit to your own husband sound in your ears, ladies. As best as a man can, I get that. Too many people have cried with me over the evil things that people do to one another. Sometimes I go home and just stare at the ceiling based on the stories I hear. None of those things had anything to do with Jesus. What is ruling these relationships, what is ordering them all from marriage to parenting and moving now into the workplace, it is grace that is at the center. 
It is doing what God says out of reverence for Jesus, trusting that He knows best, even though no one in the culture is currently reflecting His values or taking His instruction. Paul then moves into this difficult world of everyday work where most people were slaves. What does he sell to slaves? Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Think how radical this was to a person that was owned by another. He said to them, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. That was radical because in the ancient world, slaves did not inherit. The only person who was a full legal person in the ancient home was dad. The wife wasn't fully legal. The children weren't fully legal. The slaves certainly weren't. The only one who owned anything was the man at the head of that household. Paul is turning the world upside down. And the ideas of grace and equality in Christ that Paul was explaining here and applying in a way that they could obey without destroying their own lives or being killed for their obedience eventually ended slavery. It destroyed it. The faith in Christ did that. In our world, in the West, specifically, William Wilberforce helped do, helped do that. And his heirs after that. What Paul is saying to these slaves is radically filled with grace. He is saying to them, you are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer. In other words, if you're mistreated... He will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. As you read through those instructions given to bondservants in the ancient world, look carefully at the text. Here's a Bible study question. Who is running those relationships? Who is at their center in every case? Both slaves and owners are answering to whom? Jesus. Now, let's bring this into our world. It's hard to bring a world that is so distant, thank God, so different from our own into our world. Let's take that into your office, your workplace, your factory, your school tomorrow. Anybody else? Anybody here, rather, who has a, a difficult boss or supervisor, someone who's in charge of you somewhere further up the org chart that's just flat out tough? Anybody like that? All right. T two honest people in this service, only one in the first, so you guys did better. I think some of you are coming to church with your bosses and you're afraid to, uh, afraid to be honest. Understand the simplicity of what Paul is saying here. Even in the most dehumanizing and difficult of situations, you work for Jesus. Your reward and your inheritance come from Him. You may never be able to better your situation. Paul says elsewhere to Christian slaves, if you can achieve your freedom, by all means do it. But if you cannot, because very few could, don't be troubled by it. Your value in Christ is secure. It doesn't depend on your legal status or what the culture says about you. You are wholly chosen and beloved in Christ. So what can you do? You can walk into an abusive work relationship, which in America, thankfully, you don't have to put up with, but you can show great grace. And a man in our church who works in aerospace, which I'm told by so many people is such a difficult industry, had someone that was just brutal at work. 
And after a long time of insisting on rights and policies and trying to manage this person, the light of grace just kind of dawned in his heart one day, and he said, I'm going to treat her with love and respect and kindness and grace. Within a few short days, their relationship was transformed. Grace does that. And you might say, you don't know how I've been treated in the past. Granted, I don't, but I can tell you that Jesus, your Savior, is strong enough to allow you to do everything he has instructed. The last thing, the last arena where Paul turns is toward those who are outside. He says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Let me stop there for a second. I need a favor. Studying the Bible together, what is Paul asking for here? He's saying, I'm in prison because I'm telling people about Jesus. What is he asking them to do for him? Pray for him. Specifically, pray for his what? For his preaching, right? Can I be really personal and a little bit selfish? If the Apostle Paul needed prayer for his preaching, how much more do I? I hope with your breakfast when you get ready to come for church that as you pray, you'll include me in your prayers. Paul says, I'm clear on how I ought to speak. Pray that a door will be open and pray for me that I'll do what I know I should. You see, that's the heart of being a Christian, living it out in the world in a gracious way. If you understand the simple, clear, blunt truths of Scripture, what God said to do is readily apparent. What is needed is the power of Christ to do it. He's going to turn now to the outsider's and say in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be, what? Gracious. Let's get really, really, really real, okay? It's in church. We can tell the truth, right? There probably hasn't been a time in your lifetime where it's going to be more challenging to actually act like Christ than it is right now. The prison of disobedience, which is America, is changing in very palpable ways. Talk to anybody who works with people, who works with the public, and ask them, how's it going? In any dimension, practically any area you want to investigate, the culture is getting tougher. And Paul says... Here's what you need to do with those outsiders. You need to walk in wisdom with them, making the best use of the time. Why the best use of the time? Because time is short and life is fragile. Paul was writing from prison. He is saying, it's clear to me that I and the people around me do not have much time. And here's what that looks like for Christians. You make sure that your speech is what? Gracious. Not shrill not angry, not resentful, 
Not seething with bitterness, not insisting on rights, not pounding the table. Speech is gracious. In other words, when Jesus is our Lord, our points will, our words will point people to Him and remind people of Him. He says, make sure that your speech is seasoned with what? That's weird. I mean, salty speech in our day is, and now we're talking, okay? I got this part of Christianity wired. I talk very salty. It's not what it meant in the ancient world. Salty speech in Paul's world, because salt was such a precious commodity and so rare, salt was used as a rare thing to make food, you know this, tastier. In other words, if your speech is salty, it's attractive. People want to listen. It's interesting. It's not tedious. People want to hear that. That, Christian, is our commission to take into beginning in our homes, continuing through our families, taking into our workplaces with difficult people who may think you're absolutely insane for spending some of your time giving so much of your talent and even a great deal of your money to a cause of someone who presumably died 2,000 years ago and rose again to give you a home in heaven. That's what you're living your life for? Yes. How can they tell that it's different? By your grace. You show that Jesus is Lord and He has made a life-changing difference when you tell people, I've experienced His grace and here's the proof. You're going to experience it too, too by the way I treat you. Wife, you will find in me a gracious husband. Children, I will not be a demanding, harsh parent I will make sure that our conversations are filled with grace, and when I blow it, I'm going to run back to Jesus for grace and ask your forgiveness so that you'll forgive me the way he did. Boss, coworker, difficult colleague at work, I'm going to show you grace, and you're going to think I'm up to something. It's going to be so radical and so different in kindness and love and grace that you're going to think it's a trap, but it's not. I'm simply following Jesus. And to people who out, are outside who you feel threatened by or you may actually be threatened by, Paul's insistence to people who are following Jesus is that we give his grace to others. Listen, this is a real thing. For some of you, the most difficult place to show the grace of Jesus is waiting outside for you as soon as you get in your car. And you're going into a difficult home life maybe where you're really the only Christian. And nothing about your spouse reminds you of Jesus. And then you go into a job place where you perhaps are the only one who's following Jesus or there may be others, but it's kind of a forbidden topic now. And the boss is difficult and the colleagues are nervous and that whole world of conversation has been set aside. And then you've got outsiders that aren't even in your workplace who you feel threatened by, that you feel the world getting harsher and more difficult around you simply because you're a Christian. What's the answer? Grace. It was grace that transformed marriage and transformed parenting in such a radical way that the world we live in now, transformed by the grace of Christ, is completely different, unrecognizable from the ancient world in which it started to flourish in cities like Colossae. 
we take so much for granted because our lives have been so blessed and changed. Our very assumptions have been changed by the grace of Jesus. The way you're going to show up as a real Christian is not in what you say about Jesus, but how you treat people in His name by giving them grace. Let's pray. Think for just a minute through these worlds, your home, your work or your school where you're not in charge. Somebody else is in charge of you. And outsiders, people everywhere with whom speaking of Jesus is a difficult conversation. Where does the grace of Jesus, where is it most needed in your life? Ask Jesus right now to give you his strength to follow him and to spread his grace all through that difficult world you're living in. Jesus, if we will remind people of you, if the way we live in our homes, in our marriages, in relationships as parents and kids, in workplaces and schools where we're not in authority, and in this wider world which is increasingly strident against you, our only hope is to give them the grace you gave us. Help us not to lock ourselves in the prison of insisting on our own rights. Help us instead to lavish your grace on those who most need it and least deserve it. We didn't deserve it. So help us love people and give them grace as you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.